0: would this morning turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 continuing our study here of the Sermon on the Mount beginning in verse 33 Matthew chapter 5 verse 33 Jesus says again ye have heard that it has been said by them of old time thou shalt not forswear thyself but shall perform unto the Lord thy oaths.' but I say unto you swear not at all neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus is hearkening back to the second commandment that was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 7. The Lord tells Moses in verse 7 of chapter 20, he says, excuse me, he says, "...thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain." The Lord did command in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. So the Lord says to Moses in Deuteronomy that we're to swear by his name. But now the Lord Jesus says we're not to swear at all. So we have to rightly divide because obviously when God says that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, He doesn't send Jesus to contradict what he has said when Jesus is preaching in Matthew chapter 5. So as we have seen with other portions of the law of Moses, by the time of Jesus' day, the Jews have twisted once more the law of God. So this is essentially what has been going on. There would be folks that would make an oath, they would swear, they would make a promise, but they would not swear by the name of God, thinking so long as I you know, swear by, for instance, heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even my own head, then if I break that oath, I haven't taken the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, I can be as dishonest as I want to be so long as I do not invoke the name of the Lord. It would be akin to, uh, we've all heard this, I'm sure, I swear on so-and-so's grave. Have you heard that before? What Jesus is essentially saying in this portion is let your word stand on its own. That you are trustworthy and you are honest and folks know that and so there is no need for a further oath. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong for us if we go into a court of law that we can't take the oath if we're to be on the witness stand. There's some Christians that they view what Jesus says here in that way, and so they will not swear or they will not take an oath. There are some among Christian religions that will not join military service because they feel like they cannot swear allegiance uh, to this nation because they feel they would violate uh, the law of God. It's not wrong for us to swear allegiance to this nation. In fact, as you think about the pledge itself and what it says We're actually pledging allegiance, not necessarily to a nation, but to a republic and the ideals of that republic, which are really biblical ideals. Uh, The freedom of religion, the freedom of speech, uh, the freedoms to do the things that we do are actually found in the word of God. And so it's not wrong for us to uh, pledge allegiance to this nation, so long as this nation is Attempting to serve the Lord. Obviously we see things going very darkly in our world. And there may come a time that we could no longer pledge allegiance. But it would not be wrong at least in today's time. Now again if say you're called to a court of law. You have been a witness to maybe a crime of some sort. And so now the prosecuting attorney wants to put you on the stand. uh, So that you can give witness to a crime. And what is it that a bailiff usually asks? Do you promise to tell the, tr- whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Well, some don't want to give that oath because they feel like they're violating what Jesus here says. That's not what Jesus meant at all. So when you get on a witness stand, it's not wrong for you to give an oath that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and hope to God that he will help you in that endeavor. But again, here in this particular section, Jesus is... Uh, taking aim for lack of a better word for those who were twisting the law to say as long as I don't swear by the name of God I can make promises and if for whatever reason I do not maintain that promise I am not guiltless now, in Exodus chapter 20, God makes it very clear that we're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And if we do, he will not hold us guiltless. And so what do the Jews do? They, well, let's carve out exceptions here because we certainly don't want to be guilty of taking the name of the Lord in vain. So we can say whatever we want so long as we don't use the name of God in our swearing. Now, swearing here is not cursing. This is just making a promise. It's making an oath. So again, Jesus says, You have heard that it has been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. In other words, don't commit yourself with God's name, but perform the oaths. In other words, they wouldn't out and out and say it's okay to lie, but they're still carving out this exception. But Jesus says to them, Swear not at all, neither by heaven. Why not by heaven? He says, Because that is God's throne. He says, and don't swear by the earth, because that is the Lord's footstool. He says, and don't swear by Jerusalem. Why? Because it's the city of the great king. And then he says, neither shalt thou swear by thy head. Why? Because he says, you don't even have control over it. He says, because we're not able, Uh, thou canst not make one hair white or black. Now I realize that this is before the day of people dyeing their hair. Uh, But even when you color your hair, I don't care what you do to it, underneath all that, it is still either black or white or blonde or red or whatever color that it is. And Jesus is letting us know that even our bodies are under the sovereign power of God. And so if our word is not sufficient when we speak and we give an oath or promise, then we need to exercise repentance and change our conduct. And establish ourselves as an honest and trustworthy individual so that going forward all you have to do is speak and folks will believe it. The truth is very important. Uh, The Lord Jesus speaking of course about gospel truth and the truth of God made it clear in John the 8th chapter that ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. While that's true of the gospel that's just true of truth. One of the things that I had a hard time learning as a child, and my grandmother literally tried to beat it into me, was not to lie. I always, if I did something, I learned after a while that she usually knew the answer. Actually, she always knew the answer to the question before she asked it. But I always would uh, get caught in something, and I would say, I didn't do it. And she would always say, if you will just fess up, confess, she says, you may not be in any more trouble than a lecture. Maybe not even that. I may just tell you why that's not good to do and go on. She says, but if you lie to me, the punishment is now double. Double meant five for the, uh, for the act and five for the lying. And when my grandmother took a razor strap, she meant business. And uh, I could have gone to the law and there were marks. I mean, she meant business. When I didn't get many spankings from her in my youth because they were... Um, they were sufficient enough that I called them to memory. But every once in a while, about three times a year on average, and the only thing I would ever get in trouble for when I was a child is lying to her. I would do something that, now that I look back at it, didn't really amount to anything, but I just wouldn't tell the truth. I just thought, I'll get out of this. She said, Chris, you'd tell the tr- uh, a lie when the truth sounds better. And so I would try to lie my way out of it, and it never, ever worked. One of the things she would tell me about the truth, and I've heard this many times since, and it is so that just tell the truth and you don't have to remember the details because you already know. You know, Winston Churchill, at least it's attributed to him, once said that a lie goes halfway around the world while the truth's still getting its pants on. Uh, that's how it generally works, but that's not the way it ought to be. And here in Jewish society, people, who, think about it, these are the folks that, as Paul said in the third chapter of the book of Romans, what advantage then had the Jew? He says, much chiefly, or every way, but much chiefly said this, that they had the oracles of God committed to them. That means they had the promises, the oaths, the words of God committed to them. They had knowledge that very few else on the earth possessed. Very few Gentiles in the world that then was knew anything about the living God. Paganism was uh, uh, everywhere, and the gospel was uh, not the the Old Testament story of what God had done for the children of Israel, and all of the uh, promises He had made to them, all of the uh, pictures they could see, all the prophecies, all the law. That was limited to a very small number of people when you compare it to the whole of humanity during that time. So here they were, a very favored group of people that knew the truth. And most else on the earth did not, or at least they had access to the truth, whether they understood it or not, they had access to it. And yet here they were, uh, the chief among people, and yet here they were taking the law of God that many other in this world didn't even possess, and now they're carving out exceptions so that they can do wickedly. They should have just done wickedly and and not uh, tried to change the law of God. There's three times in the Word of God that we're commanded that we're not to add to it, nor are we to diminish or take from it. Now, God can tell us something in the Scriptures one time, and that's sufficient. But the Bible also says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And God tells us three distinct times in the Old Testament twice, and the New Testament once, that we are not to alter the Word of God. And what were the Jewish people doing, or at least their leadership, uh, leading up to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ? They were either adding to or more often diminishing the Word of God. They were belittling the Word of God. They were not taking it seriously. Now listen, in Psalm 138, verse 2, David says this about God. He says, God magnifies His Word above all His name. Think about that for a moment. Again, David says in Psalm 138 that God magnifies, that means He expands, He reveres, He enlarges His Word above all His name. I compare that, for instance, to uh, Acts chapter 4, when the apostles uh, Peter and John were on trial for healing the man that was at the gate called Beautiful. And as they spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ... They said that there's no other name than the name of Jesus that's given among men whereby we must be saved. That verse tells me in Acts chapter 4 that the name Jesus is very important. The name of God is important. God has given many, himself many names in the scriptures and they all are very important. But notice again David says in Psalm 138 that God magnifies his word above his name. What good is the name of God if His word is no good? What good is your name if your word is no good? God's word is very vital uh, for the establishment of His name to mean anything to us. Now there's a lot of folks that might chant His name and and think that all you need to know is the name Jesus and that is sufficient. And they don't care about truth that is uh, found in the Lord Jesus Christ just so long as we understand His name. To understand His name is to understand He is faithful unto the things that He has promised. Uh, That when God speaks, uh, you don't have to question whether it's reliable or whether it's true. That when God spoke in the Old Testament, you knew that it was going to occur. When the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in the New Testament day, uh, whatever Jesus said, it was going to come to pass. And if it hasn't yet come to pass, it will. And we can compare every promise that God has made and already fulfilled and take from that that every promise that He has yet to fulfill, we can know with certainty that He will. And so if God is honest in all that He says and all that He does, uh, then you and I, who are to be like God, are to be honest in our doings and in what we say. That if we make a promise, we do our very best to live up to that which we have committed ourselves to. Uh, This morning, Brother Lance committed himself uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ the rest of his life. About uh, 30 years ago, I made that same promise And I have fallen short. I have not lived up to the promise that I made uh, 30 years ago. But I have tried by the help of God to do the best that I can uh, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of you have been committed to do that for many more years even than I And thank God that you made that promise and so far with the help of God you've maintained that promise. But how many folks are we aware of uh, that should be here this morning uh, that were once a part of this body of believers that made the same promise that was made this morning at some point in their life but yet have broken their word to God to be a follower of Him the rest of their days. That's the most important promise that we can make. To say I am going to follow Jesus the rest of my life. Being a disciple is not a part-time job. It's not something that you retire from. It's something that once you commit to, you're committed to for the rest of your days. Much like when you make an oath, a covenant, a promise, or a vow to your spouse, you're saying, I make this promise for the rest of my life. Now obviously, uh, um, there's things sometimes that we promise that there's no way we can perform. And so don't make those promises to start with. And that's in essence too what Jesus is also here saying is don't overpromise. There's a saying in the business world, maybe other places, underpromise and overperform. Now that doesn't mean try to, you know, shady, that just means don't commit yourself too much. More than what you can do. Commit yourself what you know you can reasonably do, and then if you can do more, by all means. Do more. Don't say, well, I only committed so much, so I'm not committed any further. Well, if you're able, do more. Because, again, you'll establish your word is good. And you won't need to swear by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem. Nor will you have to swear by your own head. But as he says in verse 37, let your communication be yea, yea. That means yes, yes, yes. Or no, no. For whatsoever is more than these, he says, cometh of evil. What does he mean by that? He says, if your word is yes and no simultaneously. In other words, you make a promise knowing that you probably can't do it or you know you won't do it. He says, obviously that proceeds from evil. That comes from evil. So when you overpromise, knowing that, again, you probably can't do it, or you have no intention of doing it, that's an evil thing to do. And we, I think, all understand that. But here these folks had thought, so long as we don't swear by the Lord's name itself, we've got to be very specific in whatever say. If I come before you and I say, I am going uh, to be at your home on this day at this time to do this for you, and I swear by the name of the Lord that I'm going to do that, all of a sudden, if I didn't do that, now the Jew thought, I'm in big trouble. But if I just say, well, I swear by heaven that I'll be at your home at this day, this time, to do such and such thing, but then you fail to do so, well, you're off the hook, because, and don't need to call, you don't need to explain, just don't show up because you didn't swear by the name of God, and since you didn't swear by the name of God, God won't hold you uh, responsible, and if God didn't hold you responsible, how can anybody else? Jesus says that was never the intent of the Father. When the father said, you're to swear by my name, he says that means you take things seriously that you make a promise of. Oaths in the Bible were not a bad thing. In the 24th chapter of the book of Genesis, we find that Abraham is going to send a servant to obtain a wife for his son. But as he does so, he makes that servant swear to him that he will not take certain types of women to bring to Isaac for a son, for a wife, excuse me. And so that servant swore. Abraham made him make an oath, make a covenant, make a promise. And we find that that man was very faithful to the promise of Abraham. In fact, as he arrives on the scene of Abraham's homeland... And he meets the young woman, he will rehearse for her and the family exactly what Abraham made him swear. But as he gets to the place where he's going to find uh, Rebekah, he of course begins to worry how in the world am I going to fulfill this promise? And so he begins to ask the Lord for help. And the Lord blesses this man because this man is a faithful man, he's an honest man, he's a man that's serving, a man that God uh, chiefly loves. And so, when the servant comes on the scene and asks God for a specific sign, God uh, blesses with that specific sign and he sees. And a love when he comes into the house of uh, Rebecca's family, he says this as as he rehearses what Abraham commanded him. He says, I being in the way. In what way? In the way of faithfulness. In the way of prayer, in the way of living up to the promise that I made to my master. He said, I being in the way was led to the house of my master's brethren. So here this man who is a slave to Abraham understood that because he had been faithful uh, to his master, faithful to the promise that he had made, uh, that God blessed him and God led him and God brought him into the house of his master's brethren. And there he obtained a wife for Isaac. And of course, as uh, Rebekah comes to Isaac, we find that Sarah has not long been dead and, and Isaac is still grieving the loss of his mother. And as Rebecca comes and Isaac sees her, uh, immediately uh, they're in love with one another. And the Bible lets us know uh, that they became husband and wife and he was comforted in the death of his mother. Here, this faithful servant who swore to Abraham and kept his word was a great blessing in the life, a life of Isaac. Think how human history uh, and even messianic history could have altered had this servant not been faithful uh, to the uh, oath that he made to Abraham. You know, it's amazing how much... I'm thankful that heaven is not dependent upon human beings. But as I look at the scriptures and I see how much God did put into the trust of the hands of men and women throughout history and Old Testament and New it boggles my mind sometimes that God would entrust anything to us whatsoever. But I also know that God, who calls us, is faithful. And when there is something that God has commanded and something that must come to pass, God in his providence leads and he guides. You and I simply need the providential hand and care of God daily in our earthly experience and journey. Anyway, we see that experience in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham made this servant swear. And that servant took an oath, made a covenant. He vowed that he would do exactly as Abraham commanded, and that's exactly what he did. Let's look at a couple examples in the Word of God besides this one. Uh, Turn to 2 Kings, if you will, the 12th chapter. In 2 Kings chapter 12, we find that Israel has a king, verse 2, his name is Jehoash, Now you can go back to the chapter before and read about how he became king. You're going to find that his father had a wife that was very wicked. And when his father died, she takes of all the king's sons and she has them slain. And that woman will sit upon the throne in Israel for seven years. Seven years, this child will be hid in the house of the Lord. It's an interesting place where he's hid. He's not hid in a foreign nation. He's not hid in some remote city in the land of Israel. He's hid right close by in a place this woman clearly didn't think to look Uh, the house of God. Apparently, she didn't go there. (laughs) And so the day comes that finally it is known that it's time for this man to be king. And so they rise up and they put 300 men in charge of his security, and they'll divide them up in different ways, and they are going to um, crown him king over Israel over Judah, excuse me. And obviously this wicked queen is going to find out about it, but when she does, these faithful men are going to have her put to death, even though she accuses them of treason. So here he is now, seven years of age, king over Judah. Why it is they waited till he was seven, or why they didn't wait longer, I don't really know. But either way, he's now king, and he's going to be king for 40 years. Notice, though, when he becomes king, he says to the priest in verse 4 well, verse 2 he says, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days. Verse 4, it says, He said to the priest, All the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone that passeth the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priest take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. So here this man is king, and he takes note that the house of God is in disrepair. And so he tells the priest, here is the command, that any offering that comes to the house of God, you take it, and anybody that has a desire to give to the Lord's house, he says, here's what's to be done. You repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. This man understood that the house of God was a precious place. Think about how precious it had been to him. For seven years, the house of God had been his refuge, uh, literally so. For seven years, the house of God hid him from a wicked queen, that would, a stepmother his, that would have destroyed his life had she ever found him. I wonder, God, that the house of God would be such a refuge in our hearts and minds as it was out of this young king. This man understood that it's the house of God, the city of God. It is Zion uh, where we're going to find the strongest refuge anywhere upon the face of this earth. I realize that our ultimate refuge is God himself. uh, But where do we find God the clearest? It's here in the house of God. And so here this young man understood that there were to be no breaches in the house of God. Here he was for seven years spared from this wicked woman and his thoughts are that any breach would allow perhaps another to come in and take or it allows the house to further crumble. And so he says this is what to be done. Well as you go on and read the story you're going to find in verse 11 it says they gave the money being told it at the hands of them that did the work that had the oversight of the house of the Lord and they Laid it out to the carpenters and builders. This verse 11. That wrought upon the house of the Lord. And to masons and hewers of stone. And to buy timber and hewed stone. To repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. And for all that was laid out. For the house to repair it. Then it says. They gave verse 14. To the workmen. And repaired therewith the house of the Lord. Moreover notice verse 15. Moreover they reckoned not. That means they did not count. They reckoned not with the men, into whose hand they delivered the money to be bestowed on workmen, for they dealt faithfully. All right, if you're going to build a house in 2023, about to be 2024, and you hire a contractor, do not, do not, do not write him an entire check for the whole amount. Don't do that. We all have, we know what happens generally with contractors, do we not? We've heard horror stories of people who paid the full bill, or maybe even paid more than what the contract called for, and all of a sudden, that contractor's done gone. Brother Julian was here. He could tell you a story about when they were building a house one time, and a contractor did not fulfill what uh, he was supposed to do, and how Brother Julian took care of that situation. Uh, today, you would put you in jail for that, but what he did, anyway i just tell you what he did. He went into that man's office and laid a 38 revolver on the man's desk. And all of a sudden, he had his money back. So anyway, he took care of it. Don't do that. (laughs) Just, Just be careful before you hire somebody. And don't pay them all until the job is done. Most contracts call for a portion to be laid out as several things, thresholds are met. Anyway, they didn't do that here. Notice again. It says, they gave... That to the workmen, and repaired therewith the house of the Lord. Moreover, they reckoned not with the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be bestowed on workmen, for they dealt faithfully. You know what they... thats saying they were able to freely give it out because they knew the men that were overseeing that were faithful men who would take care of it. See, these men didn't come in and say, Well, I'm going to swear by heaven that if you'll give me the money, I'll make sure to repair the breaches of God's house. They didn't have to. These men were already known to be faithful men, and so they didn't even have to reckon with them. They didn't have to sit down and say, well, give me a bid, and I'll go get two more, and whatever the best bid is, we'll move forward with that. Nor did they say, well, we'll give you 20% down uh, to get some materials, and when you get so far in, we'll give you another 30%, and when you reach this uh, threshold, we'll be up to 80%, and when we do the final walkthrough of the house of God, we'll cut you the last check for the last 10 or 20%. They didn't have to do that because these were faithful men who were working on the house of God. Would to God that everybody in our society uh, today was that way. But the Bible does let us know that in the last days, uh, evil times shall come. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days, perilous, excuse me, perilous times shall come, dangerous times. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's the first indication, that's the first sign that Jesus, uh, Paul excuse me, gives there that perilous times are coming in the last days. He says men shall be lovers of their own selves. So, well, men have always loved themselves. Yes, but it will become more predominant. And then as you read the list that follows, you'll find there that everything that proceeds is because men love their own selves. In that list, you'll find this word, truce breakers. Men are going to become truce breakers. I think I've told this before. My great-grandfather, the husband of my great-grandmother that many of you met. Actually, there's enough new folks here now that some of you met. My great-grandfather could be walking down the street in our hometown and meet the banker and say, By the way, I need to borrow $500. $500. The banker say, okay, CD, as soon as I get back to the bank, I'll make sure one of the clerks puts that into your account. Come by when you can and sign the papers. My grandfather had the money before the papers were ever signed. And I suspect that if he didn't go in and sign the papers, I don't know that the banker would have said much about it. Because he always paid before the due date. Whatever the arrangement was that he had made verbally on the street, As far as I know, he never went into the bank and sat down across the banker's desk and talked to him about a loan. But see, his father, my uh, great-great-grandfather, owned the house where my great-grandparents lived. And his daughter was going to abandon the house, not pay it off, and let it just go back to the bank. My great-great-grandfather said, that's not going to happen. He says, my name is too important. she didn't even have his name anymore he says my name is too important he went down to the bank and paid off the note and my great grandfather was told if you'll work for me this year picking cotton I'll give you this house and so that's how my great grandmother's house where my mother lives to this day came into the hands of our family because my great great grandfather was very conscientious of his name and he wanted to be known as a person of honest report and my great grandfather lived the same way And because he lived that way, that man wasn't concerned. Uh, I don't know what amount it would have taken for the the banker to tell my grandfather no, or say, well, come by the bank first, but all his life. uh, He lived in 1988. And by that time, people were pulling credit reports. You were signing loans, or paperwork for loans, before you ever got the money. But he never one time had to do that, because he lived honestly, all the days of his life. Again, Paul says that in the last days, because men are lovers of their own selves, they'll become truce breakers. They'll break their promise. And now, sadly, it's more common than not for many in our society to break their... I was reading um, yesterday an article that right now in America, um, different um, uh, merchants are reporting losses... Because here's what folks will do. They'll order something, say like from Amazon or some other uh, online uh, website. It'll be delivered. And the person will claim that it never was delivered. So they'll send another one. And then the person will return one of the two, get their money back, and now they've got the item for free. That is costing American merchants, if I remember the amount right, uh over a billion dollars of loss a year where do you think that cost is passed on to for those of us who are honest when we buy something so most people asked about that says well that's not stealing doesn't hurt anything well if i go buy something on a credit card and just say knowing i'm just never going to pay that i'll just buy it enjoy it have it but i'll never pay the bill is that honest No, it's violating exactly what Jesus is talking about there in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And again, over 50% of the younger generation, I can't remember what, not millennial, whatever comes after millennials, I'm in that group. No, I'm above the millennials. Millennials are after me, and it's the group below them. Uh, I'm not a millennial, so I barely escaped it. Uh, Anyway, um, the group after millennials, they're saying over half. Don't consider that theft. Don't consider it dishonest. Why do you think that is? Because their parents did not take them to the house of God because that's the generation that were not exposed to moral teachings uh, in large scale. And so, of course, they don't consider it stealing. They've never been taught against that. And so, obviously, they uh, feel they can do that, and they feel there's no wrong in it whatsoever. So it is important that parents and pastors uh, teach that you and I live up to our word And if I purchase something on credit, then I have given my word that to the best of my ability, I'm going to make sure and pay that bill. And I'm thankful that as it stands, well, I guess I am in debt right now. Uh, I owe a mortgage company. Uh, I owe a few other places. But so far, it's all up to date. And, um, And as far as I'm able, I'll try to maintain that it's up to date. I want it to be that if this church, anybody here, ever wanted to pull my credit report, you could see that I'm an honest individual. I hope we could say that of all of our membership. But anyway, here in 2 Kings, again, chapter 12, these faithful men that were repairing the breaches of God's house, they didn't didn't have to watch over the funds. They didn't have to make sure, well, let's see so much of the job gets done right before we pay them. No, they gave it all because they were faithful. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Remember Jesus says to us, let our words be yea, yea, or let them be nay, nay, yes or no. So in 2 Samuel chapter 18, here's what's happened. Absalom, the son of David, has stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. Enough so that David fears his life and flees the city. So David leaves the throne. He has a following that goes with him, faithful men. He leaves many behind, but he takes a faithful army with him. And as he goes out, of course, Absalom begins to pursue him. This is the second time in David's life that he is going to be on the run for his life. The first time, of course, it is Saul, his father-in-law, who is seeking his life. And this time, it's his son Absalom. Now, this is a direct judgment over what uh, David had done with Bathsheba that we talked about, I think it was last week. And we saw where David sinned with Bathsheba in adultery and God let him know that the sword would never depart from his house. And here's uh, one of the examples of the sword not departing from the house of King David. And so David has to flee home. Imagine if your own child wanted what you had so bad that you knew that if you stayed put, they would take your life. Imagine if you had children that were uh, such minded they would do that to you. Imagine what the heart of David had to feel like to know that it was his own son. This isn't one of the sons of Saul. This is not some other uh, individual that wants to rise up to take over the throne. This is his own child that wants the throne so badly that he's willing to take the life of David to obtain it. And so David has to flee. 2 Samuel chapter 18. The time comes that the two armies are gonna come together. In verse five, notice what David says. The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom that verse is very important it tells us a number of things number one even though that this man wants david's life david still loves him and david wants his life preserved it also tells us that everyone thereabout heard all the captains so there's not one single captain that could later say i didn't hear what david said remember when saul gave commandment that the children of israel were not to eat and jonathan came in and ate of honey and uh, all of a sudden, they realize that he has broken the king's commandment. And here Saul realized it. And Jonathan was nearly put to death. Uh, here, they give this commandment. This is not the case. David, uh, nobody can say, Jonathan can say, well, I didn't know that he said that. And he shouldn't have said it to start with. Well, nobody could say that on this day. Every captain heard it. He said, all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's charge concerning Absalom. But it also tells us something about Joab. Joab's an interesting individual in scriptures, but he was a man that had wisdom, not always the right kind. This man knew that if this young man was not put to death, this rebellion would never end. There are some young folks in our nation right now that have been brainwashed in public schools and also in colleges That think that if those folks over in Israel would just lay down their arms and go speak nicely with that group of folks that have gone in and murdered men, women, uh, children, and infants, that, you know, everybody will be able to get along. Mr. Netanyahu over there understands that's not going to work. And the only way to be rid of that situation is to eradicate those people off the face of the earth. And you can agree with him or don't agree with him, but that's the reality. And that's exactly what Joab understood. Joab understood that as long as Absalom is alive, this kingdom is going to be in peril. It's going to be divided. And so this man has to be put to death. And so he understands the king. He's been very faithful to the word of the king up to this point. But we're going to find that in this situation, he is going to disobey the king. It says in verse 9, Absalom met the servants of David and Absalom rode upon a mule and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak and his head caught hold of the oak and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth and the mule that was under him went away. There's a sermon on the internet you can find. It's called The Hanging of the Hippie and the Mule Walked On. Uh, I always think of that when I read that verse. If you read about Absalom, you know that he had very long hair. That long hair got him in trouble this day. He goes under the boughs of this oak tree. He gets caught by his hair, and there he hangs. And the, the mule kept going. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, He says, And behold, thou sawest him, and why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged thee and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I should have wrought falsehood against my own life, for there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself would have set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. In other words, I don't agree with you, and I'm not staying with you. And it says he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the yoke. Now then, so here this man is dead. They take him out and they bury him under a heap of stones. And now somebody's got to tell the king. So it says in verse 19, and this is where honesty comes in. It says, Then said Ahemiah, the son of Zadok, Let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. There's a problem. (laughs) He doesn't know all that he needs to know. Joab said unto him, Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Now Joab's not saying this so that it'll be hid from David. He just realized this young man is not the one to give the report. He knows there's another young man that will tell the truth and tell it in such a way uh, that David will receive it. You know, the truth should always be told, but the Bible does say speak the truth in love. We can beat folks over the head with truth and obviously have no positive impact on them, or we can speak the truth in love. Now, that doesn't mean that we sugarcoat things and we're all soft and gentle all the time and we never uh, show any firmness. There is a time to discern when there needs to be firmness in what we say, but we ought to always make sure that what we're saying is motivated with a heart of love for the individual that we're speaking to. And also for the God that we're speaking in behalf of. Well, anyway, we find that this young man, he wants to go and he wants to tell the king. And Joab says, no. It says, then said Joab to Cushai, go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab and ran. And then the other young man comes to Zadok yet again. And then to Joab. And finally they (laughs) say, just go. So they both come. And you're going to find that the first young man, he runs faster than Cushai. And there are folks that are watching out and they see these young men running. First they see the one and then they'll see Cushai. David is told, or David understands these are messengers. Well, anyway, when they both get there, it says in verse 28, Ahamaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? The young man answered and he says, When Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. In other words, I'm ignorant of that. I don't know. Well, what does he first say to the king? All is well. Well, what is the king most concerned about? He wants to know, what about Absalom? This young man doesn't have an answer because he wasn't there. He said, I didn't see. All I could see was a tumult. What does that mean? All I saw was a struggle. All I saw was confusion. All I saw was there was a mass of people and all things going on and I couldn't make out anything. (laughs) So finally it says, Cushai came, verse 31. And Cushai said, Tidings, my lord, the king For the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? Notice how Cushai answers. He says, The enemies of my lord the king, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. You know what he just said? He's dead. But so are all of your enemies. He didn't start off with, yes, Absalom is dead, but so are all your enemies. He spoke the truth in a way that David would receive it. Now, David still is going to mourn Absalom to the point that Joab has to come and rebuke him for it. Because he's saying the heart of the people is going to be disheartened because of you. You've got to move on from this. But here in this moment, Cushai uses great wisdom in telling the truth. His yea is yea. He's not going to lie to David. He's not going to say, Well, I don't know. The other man really didn't know. But this young man doesn't say, Well, I don't know what's happened out there. He just says, Here's what I know. The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is. They're dead. And yes, he's dead too. The king was much moved and wept. Went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, Thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. So David, of course, dealt with all this unwisely. David loved that son to a point that he would not discipline him, which was one of David's great faults as a father. How many times have you heard parents say, and I know this is kind of a side topic to honesty, well, I just can't punish my children. You know, I love them too much to spank them, (laughs) or I love them too much to do this, or I love them too much to do that. Well, that's not really love. That's a softness that shouldn't be. Obviously, your children need to know that you love them. They need to discern that. They need to understand that. It needs to be reinforced. But one of the greatest ways you reinforce that you love them is the discipline that you show them. How do we know that? Because Hebrews, the 12th chapter, lets us know that every son that God has, he chasteneth. He chastises. Every child of God is going to be chastened of God. Why? Because we all do wrong and we have a Father in Heaven who is faithful to chasten us when we do. David was unfaithful in this regard. And so now Through the providence of God, this man who would divide divide the kingdom is put to death by Joab uh, who did not care what the king commanded because he understood this man needed to be done away with so that the king could live in some sort of peace or at least the kingdom be in peace and they could move forward. And so this young man, he comes and he tells the truth but he does it in a very wise way. Very quickly, let's turn to the book of Acts, the fifth chapter. I know time is gone, and uh, I'll go through this very quickly, and then we'll close. In Acts, the fifth chapter, we find a very familiar story about folks who do the opposite of what this young man Cushai did. In Acts, chapter 5, it says a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it. That means she was aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Notice verse 4. Some think that this man was required to give all that he had. That's not at all. This tells us there was a part of the story that's not recorded here. They came and they presented the gift as though it was the entire price of the land. Because notice what Peter says. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. What's he saying there? He said, while you owned it, you could have continued owning it. Nobody required you to sell it. He said, and when you sold it, nobody made you give of the proceeds to the house of God. You didn't have to give it. But obviously he brought it and he presented it as though that was the entire sale price of that piece of land. And so here he has lied. He says, not to men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Imagine if if that happened in our day and time, what would happen? Imagine we come to the house of God, tell a lie, and drop dead. I mean, the Holy Ghost exposes folks real clearly here, does he not? And the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. They had a funeral without her. She comes in. Peter answers unto her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. The Lord clearly takes honesty very seriously. In Acts chapter 5, dishonesty costs two people their lives. The truth, as sometimes is not enjoyable to tell. When I was a child I didn't want to tell it a lot of times and I didn't and I tell you this the lie was far worse <laughs> and it still is the truth is so vital our word ought to be important to us again the Bible says in Psalm 138 that God has magnified his word above all his name in Hebrews uh, six chapter it says uh, I think the sixth chapter says when God swear to Abraham when he, because he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. He just used his own name because the name of God is sufficient. And so God, by two immutable things, made an oath in that it was impossible for God to lie. So God makes a promise. We know God can't lie. God cannot change. And so whatever God has promised, what does he go on to say? That you and I... We have great comfort. There's great consolation in the promises of God because his word can always be relied upon. And that ought to be said of you and I as well. So Jesus says, yes, you've heard that it was said by them of old time that thou shalt not forswear thyself. He says, but I say unto you. He says, don't carve out exceptions. He says, just say yes or say no. Give your word or don't. But once you commit to something, then you make sure that you provide things honest in the sight of all men. Let our word always, always, always be the truth. And that will always please the Lord. But know this, every lie that is told, just like any sin we do, he's cognizant of it. You may tell a lie to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, to your church, to your employer. And they may never know the difference, but our father always knows, and he's always displeased. You know who the Bible says the father of the lie is? The devil. So what happens when we're lying? We're taking on the characteristics of the devil. He's the father of the lie. When we tell the truth, what are we doing? We're taking on the character of one who's the father of truth, God himself. Who would you rather bear the characteristics of, the father or the wicked one? I hope that we would all always want to reflect the image of God himself in all that we do, and especially in the things that we say. May God bless you today.